0: welcome to writer types the crime and mystery podcast my name is eric beatner and with me is author sw loudon and steve it is another stellar show chock full of great guests that
1: is correct on today's show hillary davidson tells us why she loves traveling
2: i found a great number of places where i could bury a body
1: and author andrew netty tells us what they're saying about writer types in australia do we want to go here no probably Uh, not (laughs) And Scott Adlerberg has a unique
0: experience his first time on Writer Types.
3: I don't know what anyone's saying, I don't know anything, but I'm having a good time.
0: All that, plus we talk with author Ivy Pakoda, the Malmans visit Planet Comic Con, and we hear what makes a great anthology. But first, uh, hey Steve, you ever read any good books lately? You know, Eric, I, I think sometimes I'm the
1: guy that kind of holds down the new small indie artist end of the spectrum when I'm recommending a book. And this month's not going to be any different. I'm currently reading this excellent book called The Devil at Your Door by a guy named Eric Beatner. And I really think that this guy's going places. Have you read his work before, Eric? Uh, no, I, I, in fact, you're the first person I've met who has. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell all six of my friends about it, and um, none of them are readers. But seriously, man, congratulations on the release of your third Lars and Shane book. It is excellent. I'm really digging it. Um, what was it like to write about uh, something like Parkinson's
0: when you're, when you're dealing with a crime novel? Uh, you know, it was interesting. In, in that way, it is my most personal book. I usually don't throw in a whole lot of stuff about my own life. But uh, my father uh, has been dealing with Parkinson's for over 20 years, and it's the kind of thing that you never really see represented in fiction much at all or, or on TV and stuff. So I wanted to honor him in a way and integrate it into a book, and I thought having Lars start to deal with that would make sort of an interesting Third chapter for his journey. And you know, I didn't want to make it the centerpiece of the book. It's not like it becomes this big downer and becomes like a disease of the week, you know, Hallmark movie kind of thing. But uh, I wanted to throw that in there as kind of an extra complication into the story and uh, have that little personal connection.
1: Well, I will tell you, it doesn't overwhelm the story at all. I, I've been reading it, and you, you insert it in such interesting ways where, like, his finger's not uh, obeying him when he's trying to squeeze the trigger on a gun. So it's still very much a Lars and Shane book, and there's plenty of violence and action and road tripping and flying around. But uh, I just thought that was really well done in terms of weaving in uh, that final blow that you give to, uh, to
0: old Lars. Well, thank you. and you know, speaking of, I also recently finished Hang Time, okay. your third Greg Salem book, and I just have to say, uh, you know, I maybe dealt Lars uh, uh, another blow there, but you are so mean to Greg Salem sir. <laughs> you, yes. you pile on this
1: guy. Come on. Well, I, you know, I like to think of him as my fictional
0: Eric Beatner <laughs> right) <laughs> Well, a, another uh, a worthy final chapter in the Greg Salem uh, saga. So congratulations and, and well done.
1: Look at us. We're two trilogy writing MFers. <laughs> <laughs> Our first guest is Hillary Davidson, author of the Lily Moore series, as well as the standalone novel, Blood Always Tells. She's won an Anthony Award, a Derringer, the Crime Spree and Spine Tingler Awards.
0: And she also just signed a new two book deal and is in the new collaborative novel, Night of the Flood. And I don't know if it was a flood or what happened, but we had some major technical difficulties getting connected to Hillary. but we finally made it work.
2: Thank you so much for having me and also for being patient with the technical difficulties. (laughs) Oh,
0: how Canadian of you. That was totally our fault, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that was a great interview. Thanks for being here, Hillary. We'll talk (laughs) to you later. We're out of time, I'm so
2: sorry. (laughs) I didn't even get to mention poutine yet. How can you come on a show and not talk about that?
1: Oh, Eric, can you dial in Eric Pruitt? Because he has a lot to say about it. He, he has opinions about the poutine. I, I feel
2: like after BoucherCon, everybody's got opinions now on poutine. I remember everybody saying before they came up, "I'm first thing I'm going to do is get off the plane and try poutine. And I just wanted to say to everybody, you're going to Toronto. Do not eat the poutine. Run oh. away if somebody offers you poutine. Go to Montreal if you want poutine. Do not have it in Toronto. It, it's
0: like going to Chicago. Chicago for jambalaya or something? Is
1: it? Yeah,
2: or pizza. <laughs> oh, oh,
0: wow! Throwing wow. down,
1: Hillary. We agreed we weren't going to get political on this episode.
2: <laughs> hey, I'm a New Yorker now. Got to show hometown pride.
0: <laughs> well, you you have been a lot of places because, in addition to your crime writing career, you uh, are a, a renowned travel writer. And I want to start here by telling you that Steve is uh, headed off to Paris very soon. So what advice do you have for Steve in visiting the City of Lights?
2: Okay. Hook up with a local. There is no better travel advice for anywhere you go, but it's especially important if you go to Paris because there are some cities where, I mean, if you read the guidebook, you'll see the same places over and over mentioned again. And those are usually terrible places. And if you have any local, like on the ground source, they will lead you to infinitely better, less expensive, much more fun places. Well,
1: okay, and I appreciate that advice a lot. But one, um, my wife's going to have an opinion about hooking up with a local. <laughs> Although I think that that's fair. And I'll just say that you told me it was okay.
2: And then, hey, it's fairness, hypoth- baby. Anything goes. <laughs> I did not mean that you have to have intimate relations with those people, just to clear that up. When I say hook up with a local, I mean have a nice chat with.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to edit that part out and tell my wife. Um, <laughs> What you and no, I'm just kidding. That is fantastic advice, and thank you. I mean, look, you you went from being a very successful travel writer to being a very successful crime author. Um, do you ever miss being a travel writer? Because that seems like a pretty cool job.
2: Travel writer is one of those great gigs. But the funny thing is, there is this weird thing in common with travel writing and crime writing, which is that I would always get all of my best ideas from. basically talking to locals, talking to people who sort of know the groundwork, know the place, who could tell me these, you know, crazy secrets that, you know, you're, you're just not going to find out easily on your own if you only have a few days in a place. And it's sort of the same thing with crime writing, where it's like all about talking to people, like getting the craziest story idea just from having a conversation with like, You know, a forensic toxicologist. You know, it's something like that. Like it's, it's always this kind of a human connection to it. But yeah, the the short answer is, I, I definitely miss traveling all over the world because I found a great number of places where I could bury a body.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you uh, have recently taken part uh, in the new collaborative novel, Night of the Flood. So this is you and uh, some great writers all getting together to tell a, a full novel in individual pieces. So it's not not a collection of short stories. This is one through line, one narrative. Tell us a little bit about sort of that as a concept, this collaborative novel idea.
2: Okay. You're making it sound really smart by calling it, you know, concept <laughs> and that. This was a little crazy. It was like being in a mosh pit um, in the <laughs> best possible way. I I was invited into the project by Jennifer Hillier, who's um, a good friend of mine, amazing writer. And she basically said, hey, you know, some of us have decided to do a collaborative novel, and we'd love you to take part. And I was initially, I got to admit, I was a little bit trepidatious about this, because I've kind of worked on collaborative nonfiction projects before. And those tend to be well, in the past, it's been hard, It, it tends to be kind of hellish, because you have a vision for something, and someone else has a very different vision. And suddenly, you're fighting about these different visions. And that was my fear going into the night of the flood. And instead, I found this amazing group of people, we sort of collaborated on the backbone of the story um i don't know who it was but someone already had the idea of a town in chaos that there is a woman who's executed for a vigilante crime Uh, she was raped by uh, two men and she kills them and ends up she gets executed because of that this isn't a spoiler this is literally how the novel kicks off so there was just this sort of like slender backbone of a story. She dies, there's a group uh, that's threatening to blow up the dam if, um, if she does die. And so that's where the book begins. And then it was like open season on everything else. And we went hour by hour. So each writer uh, was assigned to an hour. And so it was amazing. Like people went in really wild directions with it. And yet it feels like a very cohesive whole. And then our two brilliant editors, Ed Imar and Sarah Chen, you know, at the end kind of smoothed everything out. So the details um, would match and that there wouldn't be any kind of glaring inconsistency. I
1: love the idea of you describing it as jumping into a mosh pit. I mean, it seems like (laughs) it has a lot of potential to be completely chaotic. But as I'm reading the reviews that are coming out, I mean, people are really flipping over this book. I mean, have you been surprised about the response early on?
2: I have been, honestly, because I wondered if people would accept it as a novel, which because it's intended to be read as a novel, and I've been part of so many anthologies. And I, I love sort of the short story format. For me, that's just my happy place when I'm writing. I love going to that. This is really being read as a novel, which is how it was intended. And I mean, the kudos really belong to Ed and Sarah, because I you know, that what is it, Mark Twain thing about herding cats? I mean, writers are just <laughs> a yeah. very difficult group. But well, um, I,
0: I, were, I think I think we great. could agree that it's probably mostly Sarah and because Ed's Ed's notoriously <laughs> a nightmare to work with. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hillary, you mentioned earlier, I mean you know look enough about ed uh, you you mentioned earlier your love of short fiction um, and I wanted to ask you because there's been a lot of conversation recently about the state of the short story market and crime fiction, and I'd love yeah. to kind of get your impressions about where short fiction is in the crime universe
2: so you know it's it's a hard thing to talk about right now in that some of my Favorite zines have shut down, and you know, Thuglit was where I got my start. You know, was the first place to publish me after everyone else rejected my stories for a very long time. But when I started out, it felt like there were not a lot of venues. My first short story was published in uh, 2007, and it did not feel at the time that there were a lot of markets that were interested in crime fiction. I will say though right now it also seems that there's more openness suddenly from more mainstream um, publishers to short fiction. So instead of the reaction I was getting a decade ago of we don't like crime, it seems now like everyone is woken up to the fact that crime is a genre that is endlessly fascinating and people from like it, it, it has a really broad appeal and it feels a little bit grudging. Like they <laughs> wish that more people would go to those, you know, literary uh, extravaganzas. And I don't want to mock anyone's genre. I don't want to you know, make it sound like why in the world would someone want to read a literary novel, but I do not appreciate the reluctance with which, you know, crime fiction is sort of slowly gaining acceptance.
0: All right. Well, we're going to, get to the real questions that people really want to know here, Hillary, we're we're, we're going to drill (laughs) down.
2: Hit me, baby. I want to hear this.
0: (laughs) Well, what we're doing with this episode, we, uh, you know, because Steve and I are are lazy and usually our questions that we come up with are uh, are lacking in a certain something. But we, uh, we found a list uh, of 100 interesting questions to ask people that are guaranteed to give great answers. And, and it comes from the internet, so you know it's got to be right.
2: Okay. <laughs> so we're, we're going we're
0: gonna to hit you with a few of these.
2: I can't uh, answer with cat memes, can I? <laughs> no. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Well, if, you,
0: if you describe
2: cat memes
1: very colorfully, I would accept
0: that, actually. <laughs> All right. All right. So, Hillary, what was your first thought when you woke up this morning?
2: probably like why do I have to get out of bed now (laughs) why is it morning why do I have to do this we actually have neighbors who are having a renovation and so we've been like waking up insanely early and it was the first quiet day in a very long time (laughs) and so it's like what time is it what's going on yeah I would say discombobulation would would be the honest answer there
1: so I'm going to go ahead and translate that into cat meme as grumpy cat
2: (laughs) (laughs) grumpy cat's perfect yes (laughs) that's a a good one thank you Steve that was excellent
1: all right so I'm here to help I am here to help what's the most useless talent you have
2: now I'm thinking what talents do I have period (laughs) there are so many I literally struggle I mean I'll be honest there are people that I know who are so naturally talented at so many things and I I've never felt like I'm naturally talented at anything.
0: Oh, Steve, like, we, it's, we've it's made like her question work. her whole existence. Now. No, I mean we've...
2: everything is work. I feel like I work hard at stuff, and you get better at it. Huh? Oh, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that one. I have no natural talents. Put me down as no natural talents.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was a trick question because Eric and I have no natural talents either. Oh, awesome! We just need
4: to see if you were in have the club. A club. Yeah. <laughs> Damn.
0: All right. Who would you most like to be stuck in an elevator with?
2: Oh, alive or dead. And don't make this a trick question. Like, it's a dead body. Like, like, can I bring back, you know, Eleanor of Aquitaine and have a conversation with her in an elevator? Or does it have to be a living person?
0: No, no. And anyone. Eleanor of
2: Aquitaine. She basically was this insane rebel who lived for 80 years, led a fighting force, went off into war wearing like a metal breastplate. She was just doing this in the 12th century. I mean, what kind of amazing character is that? So I've I've always wanted to meet her. That would be like if I could time travel and talk to somebody. It's like, how the hell did you get like this in the 12th century? You are amazing.
0: I just want to uh, acknowledge that we have found your hidden talent and it's apparently reanimating the dead.
2: (laughs) Oh, now I'm going to go off and work on that. You, you know how much I love cemeteries. If I thought I could do that, believe me, I'd be experimenting all over the place. There'd be a zombie army I'd be responsible for, and I wouldn't even regret it.
0: You know, Steve, it's always the people you least suspect that uh, end up controlling these zombie armies. Yeah, especially, um, I'm, I would have never guessed her to be an Eleanor of Aquitaine fan. That really surprised me. Well, I could tell because last time I saw her, she had a T-shirt with the you know the the Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, tour shirt. Right, awesome tour. <laughs> Eric, do you know what we love on this show? What, Steve? Accents. Oh, and we know a writer with a good one. Andrew Nettie hails from Australia, and his novel Gunshine State is getting a re-release this month. And I can tell you, this was one of my favorite reads of 2016 when it first came out. We talked to Andrew from his
1: home in Melbourne and we even got the time zones right on the very first try.
0: So Andrew, uh, congratulations on the re-release of your novel Gunshine State. This was one of my favorites from just a couple years ago and now it's back in print with Down and Out Books. Can we expect anything different? Did you have time to tweak anything for this re-release or is it the same book that we love?
5: Uh, it's the same book you, you, that, uh, you know and love, uh. Probably edited much better, I'd say, and it includes five thousand words of the follow-up to Gunshine State, Orphan Road.
0: Nice. And is that something that's already completed, or is that you? you oh, just-
5: please! If I, if only that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's something I'm 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 um very keen to finish this year. So uh, the the plot is in my my mind. I've started writing it, but there are a few projects I have to clear the decks of.
0: So it's February now, so you're giving yourself a 10-month window to finish this book.
5: Well, basically, okay, so you might be aware that I've also been co-editing a series of pulp history books. Yes. The first one's just come out that was on pulp, pulp fiction and youth culture and how, how pulp has presented youth culture since World War 2 We've contracted for three of those books, so I'm just Literally just finishing the second of those now with my co-editor, and that's looking at how at basically radical pulp and popular fiction about revolution and the counterculture. Then I've got a monograph on the 1975 dystopian science fiction film Rollerball, that's in the bag, and so that'll just leave me with my PhD to do. In which case, I should also be able to, I think, probably do a try and finish off a novel in the next, uh, you know, this year, I think.
1: I, I think what he's trying to say, Eric, is he did not appreciate that question you just asked about <laughs> no, taking no, 10 I, minutes
5: to write a book. I wish I could be as as seemingly prolific as you, Eric. I mean, you are, you are my idol in terms of, uh, of writing good, fast crime fiction. I know, you know,
1: Here we go again every time. You do not need to inflate this guy's head. You know, everybody falls for this false modesty Eric Beatner golly gee whiz thing, and I'm tired of it. <laughs> what you don't see in the screen right now is he's got 15 people back there chained up writing his <laughs> books for him. The Eric
5: Bader Fiction Factory. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes. Now, you are an unabashed uh, fan of heist novels in general, yeah. of which Gunshine State is one, but you you definitely uh, adhere to the mantra that uh, something always goes wrong in the heist. So What is it about the heist that blows up in, in their faces that we love about this genre.
5: Humans can't have nice things.
0: <laughs>
5: <laughs> That's basically, no, it's basically, because uh, it, I think what's so interesting about the heist genre is that it's so, it, there's the human element, there's the technological element, there's the actual job they're trying to pull, there's the, there's there's law enforcement, and then there's all the things that happen with the people who are involved in the job. It's a never-ending sort of uh Aegean stable of complications and problems to draw from.
0: Well, spoken like someone who's working on a PhD right there.
1: <laughs> in addition to this interview, we also have Gary Phillips on this episode talking about the Obama inheritance, which is yes. an anthology that he curated and that you have a short story in. So how did you get involved with that project as an Aussie? Uh,
5: the Good Graces of Gary Phillips. So the the pulp books that we're doing, those pulp history books, Gary contributed two, I think Gary contributed two essays to that pulp book, that second pulp book on revolution and counterculture. Maybe I was just on his radar. But anyway, he suggests he, 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 he reached out to me and I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that.
0: And do you think you had a, a unique perspective on, uh, you know, our American politics, which is kind of the, the centerpiece of, of that book, being f- from out of the country?
5: Oh, do we want to go here? No, probably uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> do we, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I do have, I think I think lots of Australians have a unique perspective on the notion of conspiracy theories buzzing around the president, the US presidency and Obama. It's hard to sort of, Think either particular side in U.S. politics is conspiracy free or isn't planning bad things? Let's just say that.
0: <laughs> now, is uh, definitely here in the states. I feel like there's a, a pretty tight knit uh, crime fiction community. Steve and I are always comparing it to like being in a band, and there there is sort of like a, a circuit you can go to with conferences or bookstores to visit. Is there a, a, less of a, a an organized group of crime writers
5: in Australia? I think so. Look, I mean, there is a crime community in Australia, but it's very dispersed. It's slightly smaller than it is in the States, or it's a lot smaller than it is in the States, so there's not the depth. I also think you're far better at appreciating and celebrating and have a far better knowledge of the history of your own genre than I think we do in Australia. There's not a lot of celebration of what's gone before, I've I've always thought.
1: In our quest to always make our jobs easier, we Googled several questions to find out which are some of the easiest questions to ask to get a fantastic response from an
0: interviewee.
5: Okay. Thank you for making it so easy, Steve.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right, Andrew, uh, tell us, what was the last lie
5: you told? Including this show? (laughs) <laughs> if it if it happened in the last no, five minutes, I, then yeah, go I'm ahead. Think, I'm am I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive I must have lied to my to my daughter about something to get her off my back about something. I'm sure. <laughs> I can't remember. There's so many of those lies that it's just like, you know.
0: Was yeah. was it one of the one of the regular ones? Like, yeah, yeah, I love you, honey. Whatever, just go with it. No, no,
5: no, that's true. it was more like <laughs> yes, 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 I really enjoyed watching that show or Yes, yes, we'll do that. Oh, that's fantastic. No, that is really terrible. Something like that. Feigning interest that I maybe I didn't have at a certain point or something like <laughs>
1: that. Andrew. Yes. What is the weirdest thing you own? I'm just
5: looking probably this me- Mexican hoof a uh, wine bottle, I think, which you can't see there, but there it is there, probably that. Wow. And, and, and the stupidity of trying to collect hundreds and hundreds of old pulp novels that I'm doing my PhD on, probably, that I say to my daughter every now and again, you know, when I die, you're going to inherit all of this. And She just looks at me and it's like really frustrating. It'll so make can- a
1: nice fire that'll keep her warm for one night.
5: Yes, that's right. That's right. Wait,
0: do you want her to be more excited about your impending death? <laughs> no, no, but I want her to be more excited about my pop Fiction collection. Gotcha, okay. All right, well, t- tell us, what is the worst injury you've ever had?
5: I got hit by a motorbike in Phnom Penh, Cambodia once. That was pretty bad. I, But that was me walking across a road in a busy Phnom Penh street. I was drunk too, so my fault. My bad. <music>
1: For our listeners, can you please recommend two or three Australian noir pulp or mystery authors that we should be reading?
5: There's a good Australian crime writer called Emma Bischik, who you, you might know. She, she
0: think, was on the show uh, when you guys were talking about uh, when you guys did the Unpanel before.
5: That's right. She's very good. Uh, there's an up-and-comer. Actually, I, would, I don't know if he wants me to call him an up-and-comer. There's a guy called Ian Ryan. He's very good. Probably the, the best crime writer working in Australia today, I, I think, is um, a guy called David Wishwilson, who's in Western Australia. Uh, you know, his books are just absolutely terrific. Gritty, they're noir, he's got a beautiful lyrical turn of phrase, a terrific uh, sense of history. He's probably the best crime writer working in Australia at the moment, I think.
0: All right, Steve, there you go. We got to have David on the show. Sounds like it's a done deal. Wait, wait wait a minute he's on the western side what's the time difference there
5: it's it's 10 it's uh 11 o'clock here in melbourne it's probably i think he's about four or five hours behind me we don't have a phd in math that's for sure
6: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know normally in the, this point in the show we would call up our resident reviewers the malmans but this time when we called they didn't answer Well, Eric, I didn't tell you, but that's because
1: they made the road trip from Minnesota to Kansas City for Planet Comic-Con. And while they were there, Dan and Kate did their own version of the UnPanel. That's right. They asked several
0: comic book writers, artists, and creators about how they first got into the world of comics.
1: Hello everyone in podcast land. This is Dan and Kate Melman reporting to you live from Planet Comic-Con in Kansas City, Missouri. Dude, it's a podcast. It's not live. The listeners can listen anytime on demand. Well, don't look at me. I don't know how technology works. I'm just here for the comics. Well, good, because it's comics we got. Planet Comic Con is one of the largest comics and pop culture shows in the country. Comic book writers and artists, as well as pop culture actors, wrestlers, and personalities gather in the middle of the country for an amazing three-day show. We'll be talking to some friends as we explore the show. Let's Let's go. go!
6: Hi, this is Andy Parks. I'm currently inking Batman Beyond and Shade the Changing Woman for DC Comics. And I would say my gateway to comics was the glorious Mr. Adam West and the lovely Mrs. Julie Newmar from the Batman 66 TV show, which really captured my young imagination. There's a picture of me at the age of three running around the house in a towel that my mother had custom sewn into a cowl so that after my bath time, I could run around the house as Batman, and I still love Batman today.
4: Hi, I'm Amy Chu. I'm a comic book writer. I'm the current writer on Green Hornet, Red Sonia, Deja Thoris, and uh, also Summit from Lion Forge. And how I got into comics is actually kind of weird. Okay, so I did get into it by accident. I was just trying to help my friend do her Detective Comic. So um, that's kind of what happened, and I just kind of got sucked in in a big way.
7: Hi, I'm Christopher Priest, a writer for Deathstroke and Justice League for DC Comics. What got me into comics? I got really sick when I was uh, about eight years old, and my mother went to uh, the drugstore and she brought home a copy of uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. And he was dressed up like a pirate. I don't remember what the story was exactly, but it, the pirate thing got me. I love pirates. Uh, and that was my first comic book and I've been hooked
6: ever since. I'm Jason Aaron. Right now I'm working on, what am I working on? A lot of stuff for Marvel, The Mighty Thor, and some secret stuff that I can't reveal yet. I do Southern Bastards, which is a southern crime book. I do a book called The Goddamned, because I like doing lots of books with curse words in the title. <laughs> uh, my gateway into comics was The Spinner Rack at the local drugstore. My mom would go to the drugstore, and I'd tag along and buy stuff off the spinner rack, which I've still got all those. I've got a spinner rack in my office right next to my desk that's covered with the books I bought off the spinner rack when I was a kid. Some of them, the covers are falling off of them, or I can see where I traced over the cover because I was drawing it. So, yeah, I've still got all those. I've been reading comics my whole life, pretty much. My mom would buy me comics when I was first learning to read, you know, before literally before I could read them.
8: I'm Jason Latour. I am the writer and co-creator of Spider-Gwen for Marvel Comics. And I am the co-creator and artist and occasional writer of Southern Bastards. My father had, was not a big comics reader, but you know, when I was probably about six or seven years old, he gave me a box of comics that he had somehow collected in the late 70s. And it was a real hodgepodge of of comics. There was a lot of Sergeant Rock and Nick Fury and Swamp Thing. But in particular, in that box, there were three comics. There were two issues of the Hulk that featured a fight with Machine Man. And I was already a big fan of the Hulk because of the show. And then there was a Machine Man number one, a Jack Kirby Machine Man number one in there. And those books more than anything I think I sort of gravitated to because it was this crazy, you know, fight between a monster and a robot where the robot gets torn into a thousand pieces and then puts himself (laughs) back together and like it just seemed like these two people are unstoppable, you know, as a part where like the Hulk gets electrocuted and from there it was my parents saw how much time I spent with that box of comics, so it became an organic pursuit from there.
9: Well, that does it for our segment from Planet Comic-Con. We had a blast and hope to visit again next year.
1: A special thank you to the creators that gave us a moment of their time to speak with us. Now, back to Eric and Steve. This is turning into a Ferris Bueller moment, guys. Really, our bit is over. Go home. It's done.
0: Well, I know Dan is always trying to push his comic book agenda on me, uh, and it hasn't taken yet. But uh, those are some really fascinating and surprisingly kind of heartfelt stories about the origins of the love of comic books from those people. I don't think Dan is ever happier than when he's
1: reading comic books, talking about comic books, or talking to people who make comic books. The guy is just in his element in that world. And it's so awesome that he and Kate have that bond over comics.
0: Hey, you know, as long as we're getting out of the studio, Steve, we recently held another Noir at the Bar right here in LA. And among the readers was
1: Ivy Pacoda. Ivy recently released the critical darling, Wonder Valley. In this
0: novel, she portrays Los Angeles in a fractured and fascinating narrative. We chatted with Ivy in the busy bar between readings and asked her about her new book and why it took so long to write. All right, so uh, Ivy Pacoda, welcome to uh, your Noir at the Bar reading. Now you have read at Noir at the Bar previously, but that was three years ago, and you've taken your sweet time to write another book. Why are you so slow?
9: Well, I'm not a conventional mystery writer. I'm not, like, one of these crazy book-a-year people. Um, Actually, oddly enough, the last time I sat Noir at the bar, I read the material that became this book. So it takes me a long time to write. Um, I'm trying to get faster. Maybe I should, like, take some speedy drugs. I don't know.
1: (laughs) But you, you say you're not of this community, but you have a Michael Connelly blurb on the cover of your book. Uh, what what is it that, that that draws you to this community or wants you to be embraced by it?
9: Well, I love the community and yep. I love the people and like all of my you know really close writer friends turn out to be um, mystery, thriller, crime writers. Um, I think my work is crime adjacent. Um, I didn't know. I mean, I was told that when I published Visitation Street. Um, I love it. I've never felt more welcomed in a literary community in my life. It's not competitive. Everyone's really really nice. You know, when they announce the Edgar Awards, of course we're all disappointed that we didn't get nominated but like people are so nice and generous like i've never heard of that book i need to go read it as opposed to like what the hell is that like you know who's i've never heard of that book like that sucks so it's a great community to be part of and i think there's like a lot of room in crime for like different types of books now so um, i'm happy to be here
0: well your latest wonder valley you're here tonight for uh it starts uh with that most los angeles of things which is traffic please tell me that you came up with the idea while you were actually stuck in la traffic
9: you know, I'm not sure that I did. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can't even remember when I came up with it. I mean, I drive that section of the 110 where my book is set all the time. Even more so now, because this is how I take my uh, preschooler to school on that exact same stretch of road. Like, the day my book came out, I was driving her to school, and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm never going to ever get this out of my head. It's in my, like, every day. I hadn't even thought about it until that moment. I'm like, for the next three years, I'm going to relive my book every morning. Um, <laughs> But um, I came up with that, I'm not exactly sure where, but it was sort of an homage to Don DeLillo and, um, you know, based on something I remember happening as a kid, like a young man ran across the Brooklyn Bridge naked and died, so.
1: All right, you're a Harvard graduate with a degree in classical Greek. How often do you use that degree in everyday life?
9: Well, that kills every conversation that I've ever had. (laughs) Usually it works the other way around. People are like, what did you study? And I'm like, classical Greek, and then there's this, like, dead silence. Like, a, um, You know, you'd be surprised how often, you know, it comes up. Um, I do have a bunch of fellow classics nerds that I'm friendly with. Oh, I shouldn't really say that. I have a lot of fellow recovered classics nerds um, <laughs> that I'm friends with. No, it doesn't come in very handy, though. You try to make it come in handy. You read something, you're like, hmm, I wonder if, like, that is, you know, based on, you know, you know, well, yeah. I mean, I was reading about Godless. I was watching Godless, that TV show, the other yeah. day, and I'm like, "It's the Lysistrata. Come on! Like, doesn't everyone know that?" <laughs> That's a play by Aristophanes. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, you just
0: got a blank look. I know. Like, what?
9: Yeah. The yeah. women withhold sex from their husbands. Yeah. like, Until well, they. Yeah.
0: Now you're talking my language.
9: Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, Classics at Harvard wasn't where the party was at. I mean, it was pretty... That surprises me. I I know, me too. (laughs) (laughs) What's easier
1: for you, starting a novel or finishing a novel?
9: Finishing, definitely. I mean, starting over is probably the easiest part. Like, writing that, like, first, like, 100 pages that are never going to become a novel, that's really hard. But then when I get the idea and it all starts coming together and sort of like this big you're building to this climax you're like all these things are like tightening and coiling and you're like I got it, I got it, I got it that's easier
1: so we don't do walk-on music at Noir at the Bar but if we were going to have a walk-on song tonight what would it be?
9: oh man this is the kind of question I hate <laughs> I've never heard a single song in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> Maybe A Good Man is Hard to Find by Tom Waits. Oh, nice.
7: Yeah. Yeah. So See,
0: you didn't have an answer.
1: Eric always goes Eye of the Tiger, which I kind of think is a little bit predictable. But
9: Do you really answer that? No. I can't. I went to Harvard, that was the Princeton theme song for their squash team. Like, that's just not happening. <laughs>
0: You know, while we were there at the bar, we talked with two other readers from that night, Holly Overton and Todd Goldberg. In these quick chats, we uncovered an imposter and your
1: career options if you can't unclog a toilet.
0: We're here with Holly Overton, who just read at our Noir at the Bar, so thank you for coming out. Now, Holly, you, uh, in addition to writing novels, you also write for television. Tell us, what's the difference between those two disciplines?
4: Well, I think for television, it's all about collaboration. Um, You come into a room and everybody has ideas, and all those ideas make it better. And so that's really fun because you don't feel so alone in the process. Um, And then the great thing about writing books is that it's all on you. Uh, So you sort of live or die by like your ideas good or bad and so it's kind of nice to do both because then you you get the collaboration but then you also get to be like the boss which is why I like writing books.
1: Do you ever, when you are at, at home writing a book by yourself though, having come from this TV environment where it's collaborative, do you ever find yourself when you're stuck on a plot point or a character looking right and left and starting to text your friends from the TV world?
4: I do. I don't actually even text my friends from the TV world. Like I have a group of like people that read my books and like my close friends, and I'll be like, okay, I'm totally stuck on this plot point. Like I read someone, someone once, like at a panel I did, said they never, they had no one read their books. Like their editor, was that you?
0: Probably wasn't me who said it, but I, I, I don't let anybody read anything.
4: That's I see. I find that so amazing. I feel like sometimes I'm like, am I leaning on people too much? But I, lo- I think it comes from coming from TV to books. You just re- I just need someone to say like. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> you know what makes make that better? And it usually does make it better. And then, sometimes, and then you can ignore it and you can be like, no, you're wrong.
0: <laughs> uh, you're also uh, an identical twin. Do you ever ask your sister's
4: advice? Oh, actually, she's the first person that ever reads everything. Like, so she's read every single. Draft of every single thing I've ever written. She's like the most important person to my process.
0: But being identical isn't she just like it's brilliant? I would have done exactly the same.
4: I wish. And she works in TV development now, and she didn't used to. And so I'll be like, stop giving me notes like at a development executive, because she used to. She used to be a little gentler. Like I don't know if that that works. And now she's like that. That that's terrible. No, that doesn't.
1: So we're here at Noir at the bar, you read tonight, your reading was fantastic. Since you have an identical twin, have you ever been tempted to send her in your place to a reading and see if anybody notices?
4: Not to a reading, because she gets super nervous, but we've gone on job interviews for each other.
1: I don't know, Eric, I'm not falling for it. I I don't think this is the real deal right here. We've been duped
0: again. Yes. So, right, Todd Goldberg, you just read it to uh, Noir at the Bar, thank you for reading, but you also uh, started by saying how much you hate readings. Why do you hate readings?
7: Uh, I have a low tolerance for people reading really slowly and really quietly about very sad things that have happened in their lives, but you know, here's the thing, guys, is I run an MFA program, so I hear a lot of student readings. And I'm not saying students aren't super talented, because, of course, if they're in my MFA program, they are super talented by definition. Uh, At the end of the class, they are, anyway. Right. But, nevertheless, there's always a point at which someone's reading sad poetry where they're rhyming sanitary napkin to something, and you just think, (laughs) oh, man, I don't need to be here.
1: (laughs) Running an MFA program, what is the single worst piece of advice you've ever given a budding
7: writer? Oh, gosh, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is the honest truth, is that I feel like um, it's actually my duty to tell someone to stop, and I think they should stop, uh, because there's a lot of money invested, there's a lot of time invested, and if there's a student who can't do it, like, I feel like I need to tell them. That's probably the worst conversation I ever have to have, is that conversation on the phone, when I call someone and say, You shouldn't spend another $20,000 on this. But if you were to go to plumbing school and you couldn't fix a fucking toilet, someone should be like, hey, dude, you can't fix the toilet.
0: (laughs) Well, Steve, this month's UnPanel takes a look at
1: anthologies. We gathered three editors of upcoming anthologies to ask them what makes
6: a great collection. Hi, this is Gary Phillips from Los Angeles. I'm the editor of the Obama Inheritance from Three Rooms Press and the upcoming Culprits from Polis Books. I've also edited and contributed to uh, various other anthologies uh, over the years. In terms of what makes a great anthology, I think if you have a premise that sparks the creativity and imagination of the writers uh, you're seeking for the anthology, I think that's all to the good. If it's not, if it doesn't spark them, it doesn't doesn't excite them. Then you're going to get flat stories. But if they're on board, if they're down, then you've got a great anthology.
2: Hi, this
9: is Susie Bright from Santa Cruz, California, and I'm the editor of the upcoming book Santa Cruz Noir from Akashic Books. So a great anthology. What is it? A great anthology has a killer opening, a devastating closer, and crack shot writing all the way through. It has a consistency of theme, a diversity of voices, and several changes in tone speeding up, slowing down, comic, and tragic. Finally, if a story, if any manuscript I read Makes me actually scared to publish it, terrified of public outcry, and squirming in my bed at night. It's got to be a winner. It's in the book.
10: This is Cousin Bruce Morrow coming to you with the sound of the swinging 60s, flash for the past. Oh wait, that's not right. Hi, it's Larry Kelter calling from sunny yet snowy Long Island what makes a great anthology well people will tell you there are components to an anthology that need to be uh, met such as having a great theme and I think we've got one with the black car business certainly the black car has represented an ominous entity throughout the annals of fiction but there's more to it than that the basics of it are very simple find group of superior like-minded writers and leave them the hell alone give them some basic parameters and let them do their job anyway that's it for me and I will uh, look forward to hearing your comments on the black carpet business being released April 30th 2018
1: Our final guest this time is Scott Adlerberg. Scott's recently published novel, Jack Waters, is a period piece that is part
0: revenge saga and part political thriller. We caught up with Scott from his home in New York City, a far cry from the Caribbean where the novel is set. Scott Adlerberg, your new novel, Jack Waters, it takes place way back in 1904. Why did you make such a big jump back in time?
3: It gives you, I don't know, I think setting a story in the past, you know, it gives you a lot of freedom, actually. You got to get the details right, obviously. You can't have, you know, a jet plane flying in 1904. You know, you have a lot of, a, a lot of freedom to basically tell like a story the way you want to tell it. It's not beholden to things that are happening right now, current events. So it's, it's, I find it's, it was pretty liberating, actually.
0: Did you ever hit a moment where you were like, God damn it, if I could just make somebody make a cell phone call, it would really help the plot?
3: <laughs> yeah, that would make things, although that might destroy the whole plot, you know, sometimes, you know, the, yeah, but actually things can hinge a lot more easily in the past because you can't resolve things that easily. Now you can, if it, if it just to send a text message, the whole situation would have been resolved, you know, <laughs> not in 1904. <laughs> Took two weeks for that letter to get there, and in the meantime, a lot of a lot of problems happened. You know,
1: yeah. In addition to being his uh, a historical novel, it's also kind of a political thriller set in New Orleans and the Caribbean. So, what what was the inspiration for this story?
3: Basically, I was spent a lot of um, you know summer vacations mainly in the Virgin Islands when I was a kid. I went several times to the Virgin Islands with my parents. So I just came to like the Caribbean. I've said other stories in the Caribbean, obviously. That and South American literature, books, Marquez, that kind of stuff. So I said it in the Spanish Caribbean. I just said, I didn't really have to do much research. I'd read a lot of books over time set in the Caribbean and the history. And it's just, you know, I like that era. I like the Caribbean. The idea was to tell this kind of story of a guy who there's a small injustice done to him. And it really blows out of proportion. He winds up getting involved in this revolution really for a non-political reason. He wants to get money back that the dictator of the country owes him from a poker game. The guy never paid him. And he tries to convince the rebels that he is involved in their cause and that's where all the complications you know, come from. So I thought it'd be like an ironic way to tackle some, you know, some political things in a kind of ironic way.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, Marquez. And I, you know, reading your work, it's always been hard for me to, sort of, to really pinpoint your influences. So who are the writers that really have inspired you?
3: In terms of like crime fiction, I love Jim Thompson, that kind of, you know, psycho noir, the, 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 the deranged character, the unreliable narrator, you know, Ross McDonald. I may not show much, but I do like like sort of hard-boiled private eye stories a lot, that kind of California. I love that stuff. But, and then stuff like, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I, I like this German writer who Kafka liked, named Heinrich von Kleist. He wrote Michael Kohlhaas. So I mix it up. I You know, I don't really distinguish them much. High literature, low literature, crime, not, whatever's good is good, really.
1: That's interesting, right? Because one of the things I love about your writing is that you kind of fluidly go in and out of different genres within the same story. Right. In Jungle Horses, I, I really got a, a serious sense of magical realism. You've mentioned Marquez. You can weave in and out of absurdism, which you do in the new Jack Waters book as well to a certain degree. Do, are you thinking about genre much when you write or are you just kind of telling the story as it flows out of your mind?
3: Really, I like to just tell the story and try to keep the reader off balance. I mean, try to keep the reader guessing. You know, not, Nothing is really new under the sun per se. This one, I sort of started it as a revenge story, historical story. And then I just try to still tell the story and just use all the influences that I like, whether it's crime, magical, you know, South American literature, uh, thrillers. Jack Waters might have a little bit of the West or spaghetti Western type of this American guy winds up, you know, in this Spanish speaking place, spaghetti Western influence. I'm not like consciously thinking about genre, but throw in all the influences and just try to keep the reader off balance, you know, try to keep it fresh so the reader doesn't know where the story's going to go. That's really the main concern.
0: But is your primary concern entertaining a reader first, or are you kind of just sitting down and trying to entertain yourself?
3: That's a good question. That's a good (laughs) question. What I try to do is entertain myself, but with a little distance. So it almost would be be as if I was the reader, what kind of story would I like to read? And I assume if it's seeming to get boring or slow or something, I, as the reader wouldn't like it. I don't really think like, what will other people think too much? I mean, think of it sometimes, of course. But if you go that route, I think you're going to run into problems.
1: In our quest to make our jobs as podcast hosts as (laughs) easy as possible, uh, we went ahead and Googled some interesting questions. And on the theme of film, I want to throw this one at you. If you had to be trapped in a movie... For one month, what movie would it be? What? <laughs> just go ahead and say Paddington Bear. I know the answer.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't know a Fellini movie, and you're just like caught up in a pre- eating, drinking, se- sexual life. I don't know. That's not even, I wouldn't even remotely think of living my life that way. But it looks like fun on film. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It wouldn't even matter if you didn't understand a single word anyone was saying.
3: I don't know what anyone's saying exactly. I'm wandering around Rome. I don't know anything, but I'm having a good time. So. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, Scott, if you were to join the circus, as I'm sure you've contemplated in the past.
3: Absolutely. Of course.
0: What would your act be?
3: Trapeze. And that always seemed like fun. It's the most exciting thing. Yes, so that one I could answer. I would do the trapeze.
0: That feels
1: very Fellini to me. <laughs>
3: Yeah, we're back. <laughs> How do we get on this? Thing? We're back to Fellini. No question. <laughs> All
1: right. So, what is the habit that you are proudest of breaking?
3: Well, wow. I still drink. I still drink coffee. I never smoked cigarettes. Other than stalking people, not just women, but you know, following people in the street. <laughs> for research purposes
0: oh (laughs) Oh. i'm glad you added a a caveat
1: to that one buddy i was starting to get worried. as a writer
3: you're allowed to do whatever you want
0: the police might have other ideas about that
3: well
0: uh... i don't know if you can just pull your writer card i belong to the MWA. what are you doing officer (laughs) okay well that does it for this episode once again a great group of authors who shared a lot for us to learn steve
1: Yes, they did. Hillary Davidson taught us that she is not so secretly plotting her
0: zombie army. And Andrew Netty taught us that I am his hero. Something that I have been waiting a long time to hear from you, Steve. And Todd Goldberg taught us not
1: to be a plumber if we can't unclog a toilet. Eric, that is the show for this time around. If you guys are listening and you like what you hear, please leave a note on Facebook, share with your friends, share on Twitter. Review us on all the places you listen to podcasts, and we will see you next time around. But before we go, I know, Eric, you had something you wanted to share here at the end of this episode.
0: I do, Steve. You know, before we go this time, I want to say a sad goodbye. Author Bill Kreider passed away recently, and it's a real loss to the crime and mystery writing community. Bill was a prolific writer of mysteries, the best known of which is his Sheriff Dan Rhodes series, but there are many others, as well as the Westerns, which I particularly love, and he touched on almost every genre in between. I was lucky enough to get to be friends with Bill over the last several years, and while there are definitely so many more people in the mystery world who knew Bill much better than I did, I really cherished our friendship. Bill was a kind and generous mentor to writers starting out. He always treated me and everyone as an equal. He loved talking old pulp fiction. He was always reading what was new. He certainly gave me definitely my favorite compliment I've ever gotten in my writing career. And I asked him for several favors over the years, and he never said no. Because of that, I had the pleasure of having him come out to read at a Noir at the Bar event after his cancer diagnosis, and it was really great to see how the crowd welcomed him. And when I started my column for the Film Noir Foundation newsletter about classic noir fiction, I knew exactly who I wanted my first guest to be, and Bill didn't hesitate to say yes. I'll miss him, and I'm so glad I got to get him on this show ever so briefly when we were in Toronto for Bauschakon, a conference that he loved so much and attended regularly for decades. We played a slightly edited segment of his interview, as short as it was, in that episode. And I I cut out the part where he paid me a compliment because this show is about other writers, not Steve and I. Uh, We we try anyway. But to end the show this time, we're going to replay his interview uh, unedited. And you can hear how much he dearly loved his mystery fiction family, and how he never lost his enthusiasm as a reader and as a fan, despite being one of the most accomplished writers in any room he entered. We will miss you, Bill, but his books live on, and if you haven't yet discovered his work, you're in for a real treat. Happy trails, Bill. All right, so I'm here with the legendary author, Bill Kreider. Do you mind if I call you legendary? (laughs) That's
3: perfectly okay with me. (laughs)
0: So you've been uh, around for a while and doing this sort of thing, but uh, tell me, is there anyone when you come to these events that you still get excited to, to meet and maybe get a book signed? You mean aside from you? Well, I mean that goes without saying.
3: <laughs> Actually I, do no, I used to bring tons of books, I no longer bring books
0: to be signed. Uh, but I'm always glad to see anybody. I ran into Alifair Burke today, wow, what a great, that was a thrill. <laughs> uh, I'm going to see Charlene Harris tomorrow night, another thrill. So, yeah, there's still people I love to see. And we both have a love for those uh, classic pulp authors. Is there any of those guys that you got to meet and hang out with? There are several that I corresponded with and never met personally, like Harry Whittington, William Campbell Galt, uh, a few others. Uh, But I never met any of them personally, much to my regret. Well... I have no regrets because I've met you and we have struck up a, a friendship at these sort of events, so I appreciate it. So it's always good to see you, Bill. All right. Great to see you, Eric. Take care. Thank you.